Good morning, Lakeside. First of all, I want to thank you for your overwhelming support for myself, my family. We greatly appreciate it. And I learned something yesterday at Lila's memorial service. I learned that my granddaughter can gather a larger crowd than I have ever been able to gather in over 41 years here. She is in the category of Ken Ham and John MacArthur and now Lila Goody packing this auditorium. Thank you so much. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said these words. He said, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. For the past few weeks we have been mourning the death of my granddaughter Lila Goody. As I've told my friends, words cannot describe the pain and grief that I've gone through as well as every member of my family. I didn't know I had so many tears. But scripture says that there is a time to heal. There will always be an ache in my heart until the day I'm reunited with Lila in glory. Today I'm here preaching because I want to help begin that healing process for all of us, myself included. So I'm doing that by speaking to you from Psalm 23 this morning, and specifically verse 4, where David tells us, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Ever since David penned this psalm, now over 3,000 years ago, it's been the source of great comfort, great encouragement to countless people. But in particular, this fourth verse has stood out as the most comforting of all of the verses in this very comforting psalm. Because it tells us that God is with us as we walk through those dark and deep valleys where death lurks. Concerning this fourth verse, Charles Spurgeon summed up the feeling of many when he said this unspeakably delightful verse has been sung on many a dying bed and has helped to make the dark valley bright. And he's absolutely right. In fact, Psalm 23 and this verse in particular have long been associated with death and have appeared on more funeral programs and have been read at more memorial services than any other passage or verse of scripture. There is no question that this one verse has helped ease the pain and suffering of many who are in the throes of death. But a closer look at David's words indicate that they are actually directed more to the living than to the dying. You see, while these words about the valley of the shadow of death are certainly applicable to those who are dealing with death, they are intended to be much broader than death in that David is writing to help those who are alive but are facing all kinds of dangers, including the prospect of death. And the reason I say this is because the Hebrew words that David uses here that are translated valley of the shadow of death, they have more to do with darkness than with death itself. They're better translated darkest valley 
or valley of deep darkness. See, what David is referring to are those very narrow valleys and ravines in Israel, the land of Israel, where very little sunlight is able to penetrate, to enter. So that they're dark, they're shadowy. Describing how a shepherd would care for a sheep in light of the challenging topography of Israel, one Bible teacher wrote this. He said the shepherd would lead his flock from one grazing place to another, a move which would often involve passing through a narrow valley between high jagged cliffs, often filled with potential dangers such as wild animals. The sun would be obstructed from shining into the valley, creating darkness or a shadow. Such a shadow in the valley would often become a place of death for wandering sheep, hence a shadow of death. So the thought then behind this expression, valley of the shadow of death, while not excluding the possibility of sheep dying, really doesn't capture David's primary point, which is that even though sheep face many dangers as they travel through these very dark and deep valleys, the possibility of death being one of those dangers, they don't need to be afraid. Why? Because their shepherd is right there with them to protect them. And folks, that's why the truth of this verse should be such a comfort to all of us. Because as the Lord's sheep, it assures each of us, if you know Christ, that you don't have to be afraid of anything either as you go through the many dangers and heartaches and pains and suffering and sorrows and griefs involved in living. And the reason we don't need to be afraid is because the Lord, our divine shepherd, is with us and he will protect us. What a precious truth this is. It's, it's one that is absolutely relevant for every one of us because every single one of us knows what it's like to be in some very dark valleys, don't we? It might be the dark valley of a life-threatening illness. It might be the dark valley of the death of someone very precious to you. All the sorrows, the griefs, the tears that come with that. It might be the dark valley of going through a divorce or the breakup of a close relationship or the pain of being betrayed and hurt by someone you once trusted. It might even be the dark valley of losing your job and the uncertainty of what the future holds. See, you don't have to be dying to feel the darkness closing in on you. Whatever is a dark place in your life, that's the valley of darkness for you. And the temptation is to be afraid of all the uncertainty. And it's at that point when we are tempted to cave into our fears and to become emotionally unglued and to fall into despair that we need to come to this fourth verse in Psalm 23 and we need to believe it and cling to it to this incredible promise that God has given us concerning his presence and his protection. Now it's been a number of years since we studied Psalm 23 as a church family. So I need to remind you that what David has done for us in this psalm is he has presented the Lord to us as a kind and loving shepherd who provides everything we need, not in the sense of everything we want, but everything we need to have a healthy relationship with him. This is precisely what he means by opening the psalm with these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
writing as a satisfied and a grateful sheep. And remember, David spent the early part of his years as a shepherd himself, so very familiar with shepherding. But here he's writing as a satisfied and grateful sheep. David testifies that God has given him everything that's good for him, meaning that he's given him everything he needs to walk in fellowship with the Lord, his divine shepherd. And having said that, in the opening line of the psalm, David then proceeds to tell us what those specific spiritual needs are that his shepherd has met in his life and will meet in the life of every one of us as believers in Christ. First of all, he tells us that his divine shepherd meets his need and our need for rest. Verse, th- verse 2, he makes me lie, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So like literal sheep who are calm enough to lie down and to rest, God as our shepherd gives us peace. He gives us rest and calmness in our hearts as we trust him to be sovereign and good and loving and wise in his care of us. Knowing that everything that comes into our lives has been sovereignly ordained by him to work for our good, we trust him. To use all of those things, all of those situations, all of those circumstances, even the death of a precious loved one, to mold us into the kind of people, godly people, Christ-like people that he wants us to be. And being convinced of this, this great truth, we stop being restless in our hearts, even as we're going through grief, but we're resting. We stop being restless in our hearts, and so like calm sheep, We lie down in green pastures. We rest beside quiet waters, even if our hearts are hurting. However, like literal sheep, we can easily lose and forfeit this peace, this calmness of heart. By doing what? By foolishly straying from our loving shepherd as we wander off into sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as that that song says. And so the second spiritual need our shepherd meets is our need for restoration. Verse 3. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So due to our innate, rebellious, sinful hearts, we are prone to wander. We are prone to stray from our wonderful shepherd. But because he loves us, what does he do? He goes after us, using his word to convict us of our sin. And then when we have repented and we've confessed our sin, he lovingly places us upon his shoulders and he carries us back home, rejoicing the whole time. And that place of home is the place of fellowship with him. And once we're at home, he helps us to stay home, to not wander anymore. And he does this by giving us guidance through his word, the Bible, so that we know the right paths, which David here calls paths of righteousness to walk on. And we're encouraged then not to stray from those paths of righteousness. And he does this not only because this is best for us, but he does this also because David, as he says, he does it for his name's sake. Not only for us, but for himself. Meaning that this is what honors God's character. This is what honors God's name. This is what honors God himself as we glorify him by obeying him. So having 
given us the guidance of his word, we now have clear direction from scripture as to which path to walk on. In other words, as we follow what God says in his word, like sheep walking down the right trails as they follow their shepherd, we're doing the same thing. We walk down the paths of righteousness that glorify our divine shepherd. But listen closely. Because we need to understand that as we follow our shepherd down these paths of righteousness, he will at times, not always, but at times, lead us to walk down some very dark roads. Roads which are filled with all kinds of dangers and difficulties and sorrows and hard times. But we are not to be worried. We are not to be afraid. We are not to be filled with anxiety. We are not to fret. We are not to to be shaken and come apart. Because as David tells us in verse 4, when we find ourselves on these difficult dark roads roads that lead through the dark valleys of life, and we are tempted to be filled with anxiety and fear, our shepherd then meets another need in our lives. So in addition to providing us with rest and with restoration, he also provides us with his protection. So once again, I read verse 4 to you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As I've already mentioned, the valley of the shadow of death refers to those sunless, narrow valleys in Israel that are filled with all kinds of dark shadows. See, the land of Israel and the the hill country of Judah, or Judea in particular, are, are filled with all kinds of ravines and gorges that shepherds have to lead their sheep through in order to get them to the flatlands of the Jordan Valley or the Dead Sea area. These valleys are not only dark, but they also have many caves which provide natural hiding places for wild animals and for thieves, making them extremely dangerous places to travel. In addition, there are often poisonous snakes along these paths just coiled and ready to strike, as well as hungry wolves concealed by the dark shadows. And so when David speaks of the valley of the shadow of death, he's really speaking about those dark places in life where we find ourselves, dangerous places, places of uncertainty, situations that cause us to be naturally frightened, circumstances that threaten to rob us of our peace and joy. So then what does our shepherd do for us? To relieve our fears when we find ourselves in those frightening dark valleys. Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. But before we look at what our Lord does for us, I want you to notice a couple of things that are very significant. And they're significant because they help us to understand the true meaning of our text. First of all, I want you to notice two little words that David uses to begin verse 4. It's easy to overlook these two words, but they're very important. Notice he says, even though, even though, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now these two words are very important because by using them, David is telling us that following the Lord often leads through some very dark experiences. See what in reality David is is telling us is this, even though I follow the Lord, even though I love the Lord, even though I'm devoted to the Lord, that doesn't make me exempt from having to walk through those dark valleys in life. You see, we are mistaken if we think that following Christ eliminates 
all the difficulties of life. It's just not the case. It's just not true. It's not what scripture teaches at all. The greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul, suffered greatly and he walked through many dark valleys in his life and ministry. And history has shown that some of the most godly Christians have experienced dark, scary places just like the rest of us. It's important to recognize that those dark valleys, folks, they are just as much God's righteous paths for you as are those tranquil, green pastures that are beside quiet waters. And that's because the will of God doesn't always lead us to happy experiences and happy circumstances or to mountaintop experiences. Sometimes His will leads us into the valleys too. Valleys where our journey takes us through some very dark days, some very tough and painful experiences. And our natural tendency while we are going through those dark valleys is to be frightened, to be anxious, because we're fearful of being hurt. We're fearful of being harmed. We're fearful of the uncertainty of days ahead. But listen closely, because here's the point that David is making. He's saying, even though following the Lord means that I have to walk through those very dark valleys where all kinds of dangers lurk, even the possibility of death, I'm not afraid. And the reason David tells us he isn't afraid is because he knows that his shepherd is with him. So that he's not alone as he walks through that dark place. And God's presence, I want you to know, means everything when you're in a dark valley. Everything. When John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was dying, many of his closest friends gathered around him. They tried to comfort Wesley by reminding him of God's many promises in his word. Comforting promises, wonderful promises. And Wesley appreciated that. However, at a certain point, with all the energy he had left in him, he rose or sat up in his bed and he said to his friends, yes, all of these promises are true, but best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. That's exactly what David is saying here in Psalm 23. None of the Lord's sheep are alone. Regardless of how dark the valley is, or how much they might feel alone, they're not alone. Because their divine shepherd is with them. As Sinclair Ferguson has so wonderfully put it, he said, having taken us, having taken us into his flock, the shepherd gives his word that he will never leave us and never forsake us. Never means not now, not ever. Something else I want you to notice from verse 4 is how David refers to the Lord. Notice that instead of speaking as he has in the previous verses about the Lord in the third person singular, referring to the Lord as he, David now changes his wording so that in this verse he's speaking to the Lord in the second person singular, referring to him as you. See, up to this point in Psalm 23, everything that David has told us concerning God as his shepherd has been said about him, about God. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores my soul. But now, here in verse 4, he no longer is speaking about the Lord. Now, notice he's speaking to the Lord in prayer. And he says, you are with me. Not he is with me, but you are with me. So, why the sudden change? 
Why does David alter his, his wording at this point in the psalm? It's because he wants to stress the point to each of us as the Lord's sheep that no matter how difficult your journey might be, you aren't alone because your shepherd is right there with you. He's so close to you that you can speak to him. See, as David walks through these dark valleys, he wants to emphasize that his shepherd is walking right beside him. He's so close to him, as I just said, he can actually speak to him. You're with me. I won't fear any evil. He doesn't have to shout this. God is right by him. In other words, in facing danger and in times of peril, David wants us to know that our shepherd is alongside of us. He's not way out in front of us. He's not lagging behind us. He's not to the left or or right of us at a distance. He's so close. He's so intimately and personally involved in our lives that he is able to immediately protect us from anyone who tries to harm us. And we would say, as New Testament Christians living in this age, he lives within us. That's how close he is. And we were regenerated. He joined himself to us. We have a divine nature. He is within us. This is what gives us sustaining comfort in the midst of trying circumstances when we're in a dark valley. And this is why God makes it a point to tell us in so many places in his word that he is with us. He constantly reminds us of this precious truth because we constantly need reassuring that he's with us. For example, in Hebrews chapter 13, to those suffering Jewish believers who are being persecuted for their faith, we read this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we confidently say then, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And to the apostles who Jesus had just commissioned to move out of their comfort zone from Jerusalem and to move out into not only the land of Israel but into the uncomfortable Gentile world to take the gospel to a hostile world, the Lord assured them that he would be with them. Though they could not see him physically, he said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. In fact, the truth of God being with us, it's so important to us that do you realize that is one of God's names? He calls himself Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He is with us. Now, most of us already know this. We know that scripture teaches that God is with us. That's not new to us. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before many, many times. But the challenge that all of us face is recognizing his presence. It's counting on it. It's applying it to our lives. It's really believing in our hearts that he's there when we are going through one of those dark valleys and we cannot feel his presence. And that's something that can very easily happen in our lives. We just don't sense the Lord's presence and so we feel like he's not there for us. But that doesn't change the fact that he is present with you. Because he's promised to be present with you and he always keeps his word. He is indeed faithful. Job certainly felt like God was nowhere to be found as he went through the dark valley of intense suffering. In Job 23 verses 8 through 10 we read these words. Job said, Behold, I go forward but he's not there and backward but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left... I cannot behold him. He turns on the right. I cannot see him. But he knows 
the way I take, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So here Job honestly admits that he cannot feel God's presence. I understand exactly what Job is talking about. In fact, Job says that he cannot see God at all in his life, regardless of which direction he turns to look for him. But in spite of Job having no sense, no feel of God's presence in his life, he trusted that God was with him and was active in his life. And this is why he was confident that God would bring him through his trial as gold, meaning refined and pure. You see, the key then to not being afraid, even when you don't sense God's presence, is simply trusting his word to be true. Regardless of what your emotions are telling you, even screaming at you. You have to, by faith, accept the promise that he's with you and that he'll help you through any difficulty, even the most extreme ones. The Apostle Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. And very easily we could add, and not by emotions. Just knowing that the Lord is with you and that you're not going through this dark valley alone, this is what calms our fears. This is what calms our hearts. This is what gives us peace so that even though you might be attacked by all kinds of evil in various forms, you trust Him, knowing that He won't let anything happen to you that is beyond His sovereign will for your life and that He uses all things to work together for good, your good, and His glory. Jerry Bridges, in his book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, it is a classic book. If you've never read it, you really should. Bridges writes about his own struggle with trusting God during times of adversity, and here's what he said. For many years in my own pilgrimage of seeking to come to a place of trusting God at all times, and I'm still far from the end of the journey, I was a prisoner to my feelings. I mistakenly thought I could not trust God unless I felt like trusting God, which I almost never did in times of adversity. Now I'm learning that trusting God is, first of all, a matter of the will and is not dependent on my feelings. I choose to trust God and my feelings eventually follow. What wise words, what comforting words, what what helpful words, because they remind us that we can trust God, even when we don't feel like trusting Him. Like Jerry Bridges, we can choose by an act of our will, to trust that God is with us, that God is our refuge, that God is our stronghold, a very present help in time of trouble, regardless of what our emotions are telling us. See, the only way to stop letting fear control you is to believe that when God says he's with you, he really means it. And listen, when he tells us that he's with us, that he's with us in a general sense because he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere in the universe. You see, when David says, I will fear no evil because you're with me, he's not talking about the truth of God's universal presence, meaning that he's present everywhere in the world and at all times. While that is a precious truth and that is an important truth, that's not David's point. David means that God is with him in the sense that he's there to intervene in his life, to protect him, to help him as he walks through those times of darkness and uncertainty. That's exactly how David dealt with his fears. He dealt with his fears by relying on God's promise, his promise to be with him in a very real sense, in a very intimate sense, in a very personal sense. Listen to what David tells us about his fears in some other Psalms. 
Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now notice here, David is just so honest. You have to love this man for his honesty, his integrity. He honestly admits that there were times in his life that he was afraid. But he also said that he faced his fears. He faced his fears, how? By choosing to trust God. When I am afraid, I will trust him. And then he was no longer afraid. You see, David was determined to live like this, this fearless kind of a life. By believing that God was with him regardless of his emotional state. He said these magnificent words which have always meant a great deal to me in Psalm 16 verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now when David says that he has set the Lord continually before him. He simply means that the Lord is always in his thoughts. His devotion to the Lord just drives him to make sure that that he's always mindful of the Lord. He has disciplined his thought life to always be thinking about the Lord and his word. And what specifically did David think about concerning the Lord? Well, he tells us right here that his thoughts dwelt on the great truth that God is with him at, at all times, that he was at his right hand. And because of that, he was safe and he was secure. He says, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. In other words, David made sure to dwell on the great truth that God was always with him, protecting him from enemy attacks, as if the Lord was right beside him physically, ready to ward off any incoming blows. See, what David is affirming is that he counted on the fact that God was always there with him, protecting him, and he's not going to worry then, or fret, or be anxious about anything. David chose to believe, like Jerry Bridges said, he chose to believe the truth that the Lord was always present with him. And therefore he was constantly, the Lord was constantly available to help him in any circumstance he found himself in. This is what gave him courage. This is what kept him from shaking and trembling with fear. This is what kept him from emotionally falling apart. And my beloved, this is what will help you have courage too. But you have to follow David's example by choosing to trust that God is with you as you walk through a dark valley. And may I say this, I didn't say this in the first service, but I want to say it now. We walk through the dark valley, as Vance Havner once said, we don't stop there. You enter it, you're in it, there is an exit. So if you're in a dark valley, take hope. You'll come out of it. It's important to know that as we talk about courage, David's courage, important to know that literal sheep by nature, they're just not courageous creatures. They're dumb creatures, but they're creatures also that just lack courage. They're easily frightened, especially in new circumstances. In addition, they lack good vision so that when it's dark and they're traveling through a shadowy valley, they derive their courage solely from the fact that their shepherd is with them, so close to them that they know that he'll protect them from any danger, even if it means, note this, even if it means laying down his life, the shepherd's life for his sheep. And that's exactly the way a good shepherd acts towards his sheep. When one of them is threatened, just one of them is threatened, 
and attacked, he will lay down his life trying to protect his sheep. A number of years ago, Dr. John J. Davis of Grace Theological Seminary took time to travel, to live, and to work with some Bedouin shepherds in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel on a tour, you have seen Bedouin shepherds. Hopefully you have seen Bedouin shepherds in the Judean wilderness. And so Dr. Davis went there in order to learn how these shepherds took care of their sheep. Because honestly, in thousands of years, shepherding in Israel is pretty similar to what it was many, many years ago in David's time. Now concerning the way that these shepherds guarded and protected their flock, Dr. Davis wrote these words in his book, a very good book, The Perfect Shepherd. He said, you may take the flock yourself today, my son, but guard them, guard them well. These words, so heavy with responsibility, were spoken to 15-year-old Abdul, who was about to take his father's flock to the grazing areas for the first time. Abdul's response in Arabic was both moving and meaningful to me. Literally translated, he said, I will guard them to the best of my strength, my life for theirs. Folks, that's exactly how a good shepherd thinks and what he does to protect his sheep. He guards them to the best of his strength and he will die fighting for his sheep if necessary. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10 when he said that he was the good shepherd in contrast to a hireling, meaning what? Meaning a hired hand who just took care of the sheep for the owner only because he was paid to do this. In other words, looking after the sheep was merely a job to a hired worker. Therefore, he had absolutely no no real concern for the welfare of the sheep. All he cared about was being compensated for his labors. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, concerning the difference between himself as the good shepherd and a hireling. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My friends, our Lord is not a hired worker who's paid by the Father to look after you. He's not that at all. He's not someone who has no real interest in you except to make money off of you. He's not like that. No, he's our shepherd, our caring shepherd. He cares for us. He tells us to cast our burdens upon him because he cares for us. He's interested in you. He knows you intimately. He loves you. And because he loves you, he has laid down his life already for you. I hope that you see that the Lord's shepherding care is for you personally, intimately, individually, and not simply in a collective sense like, oh, you're one of the sheep of many sheep. He cares for you. Paul said, he loved me and gave his life for me. Not just us, me. He's your shepherd. He loves you. And the laying down of his life that Jesus is referring to here is, of course, his sacrificial death, substitutionary death on the cross for you as one of his sheep, which is the way he has protected you from the ultimate pain of all pains, 
God's eternal wrath in hell. If you're one of his sheep, then you can rest in the truth that Christ took your place and was punished, judged by God the Father in your place, experiencing the full wrath, full fury of his wrath that you deserved so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins and spend all of eternity in heaven in perfect fellowship with him. Now listen, although his greatest work of protecting you from eternal disaster. That's finished. Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. He did the work on the cross of protecting us from hell. However, as our great shepherd, his work of protecting us from evil and harm, it's not finished. It continues now so that we don't ever have to be afraid no matter how dark the valley is that we find ourselves in. He's with us And he protects us. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. It's a truth that has brought me personally great comfort while I walk through my own present dark valley. Paul said this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Listen, Paul's point is that God is for you. He's not against you. He's not your enemy trying to mess up your life. Even if your circumstance gives you a different impression, God is for you. He's for you even when it appears that your very comfortable life has suddenly taken a turn for the worse. He's for you even when it feels like he's not interested in you. And to verify his point that God is for us, God is for you, in spite of how things may appear, the apostle says that God has already proven his deep love for you by not sparing his son. He didn't spare his son for you when you were his enemy. So that you need never fear now, now that you're his child, that he'll forsake you. He didn't forsake you when you were his enemy. Why would he forsake you now when you're his child? In other words... If God has already done the greatest thing for you, which he has, and that's dying for your sins, he's certainly not now going to fail in doing lesser things for you, now that you're his child. Concerning the preciousness of this truth, Sinclair Ferguson, speaking about his own experience in a very dark valley, said this. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but it's well worth it. He writes, I was brought up in a small family with my father, mother and elder brother, and they have all died. My brother died late one night without warning. I remember lying in bed hours later, so overwhelmed by the shock that I wondered whether I could sustain it sufficiently to be able to visit my mother early the next morning to break her heart with the news. That sad journey, the words that passed between my mother and myself as we clung to each other in the valley of the shadow of death, these are the unforgettable secrets of the soul. But there is something else I cannot forget about those hours, something that sustained me then and has often done so in other circumstances since. As I lay awake, waiting for the dawn and the hour of the dreaded visit as a messenger of sorrow, some words of scripture lodged for many years in my memory seemed to grow from a seed into a mighty tree under whose branches I found shelter from the storm, comfort in my sorrow, light in my darkness. I felt those words 
to be true as surely as if I had heard the voice of God speaking them from heaven. Here they are. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Then a few verses later, for I am convinced that neither death, neither the present nor the future will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He continues, I cannot imagine living the Christian life on any other basis than this. If the Father loves me so much that he did not spare his own son but delivered him up to be crucified for me, no further guarantee is needed of his wholehearted and permanent commitment to me and to my blessing. Whatever happens to me must be seen in that light. Yes, my deepest fears may become realities. I may not be able to understand what God is doing in or to my life. He may seem to be hiding his face from me. My heart may be broken. But can I not trust the one who demonstrated his love for me? When I was helpless in my sin, he sent Christ to die for me. If he's done that, will he not work all things together for my good? Will he withhold anything that is ultimately for the good of those who trust him? End of quote. My friends, you can be greatly comforted by the truth that Jesus Christ is with you and he is taking care of you, no matter how dark your valley might be. Since he's already proven his love for you by laying down his life for you on the cross, you don't ever have to doubt his love when life threatens to overwhelm you. But I want you to notice what else David says about his shepherd that gave him comfort as he walked through those dark valleys. I'd like you to look at the last part of verse 4 because it's here that he tells us that it wasn't simply the fact of the Lord's presence that gave him comfort and courage. As important as that is, it was also, note this, it was the Lord's power to protect and care for him. That was the real source of his comfort. He said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now with these two words, David mentions two implements or tools that shepherds of his day used that he said brought great comfort to him, namely a rod and a staff. So what are these? Well, a shepherd's rod was about a two foot long oak club with a round head at the top that had sharp pieces of metal just pounded into it. And the shepherd used this powerful rod as a weapon to ward off any attacking animals, and even thieves that threatened to harm his sheep. Secondly, he had a shepherd's staff. That was a pole with one end that was bent or hooked. You've seen pictures of a shepherd's staff, I'm sure. And he used this staff as an instrument to assist his sheep in any number of ways. For example, he could use it to pry a sheep loose from the thickets or to push some branches aside or to pull a sheep out from a hole that he'd fallen into or even to beat down some some high grass to drive out a hiding creature like a snake. Now both the rod and the staff, they were symbols of the shepherd's power and his strength. They were tools of his trade that he used to protect his sheep from wild animals harming them and even from doing harm to themselves. And David's purpose in telling us this is to impress upon us the truth of the power, the strength of our divine shepherd, that he is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful. There's no one more powerful than him in the universe. 
And just to illustrate how powerful our Lord is, in Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord declares to Israel that the nations that have oppressed them, that they're weak, they're insignificant by comparison to his power and his strength. And he tells Israel this in order to comfort them by assuring them that his deliverance for them as a nation from these intimidating other countries, empires, it's just certain because of who he is. Listen to what God says about himself in comparing himself to the nations of the world. He said in Isaiah 40 verses 15 through 17, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. Did you get that? All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Listen, if God is more powerful than the most powerful of nations, so much greater, so much greater than them that their power to him is just like, it's as strong as a single drop of water from a bucket or a single speck of dust on the scales, that's nothing. Then you and I have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear in the dark valleys of life because our omnipotent God is with us and he loves us and he has committed himself to taking care of us. Therefore, as you walk through those dark valleys, you should be comforted by the fact that no one can defeat or thwart your shepherd's will for your life. What God has decreed for your life, he will bring about because no one is stronger than him. As long as he, your omnipotent, loving, kind, and sovereign shepherd stands guard over you, protecting you, and he has promised to do that, you have no reason to fear anyone or anything. That's David's testimony. That should be our testimony as well. So if you find yourself in a dark valley these days, I understand. Just be comforted by the truth that your shepherd is with you. He hasn't left you alone in the dark valley. He's with you. And he's with you in such close proximity that you can talk to him. You can talk to him in the most personal and intimate of ways. And being the most powerful one in the universe, no one and nothing can touch you outside of his will for your life. Now, if you are not a follower, if you are not a believer, if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, then he calls you to become one. He doesn't, he doesn't simply call you. He doesn't simply invite you. He actually commands you to believe upon him. How do you do that? Well, you turn from your sin. You, you turn from your self-absorption. You turn from doing what you want in life. And in turning from your sin, which the Bible refers to as repentance, forsaking your sin, you turn to him. For salvation, you place your trust in him as the sole basis for going to heaven. His death on the cross for you, that's what you're trusting in. And and he will then forgive you of all your sins. and, And even beyond that, he will impute his righteousness. He will credit to your account. My friends, that is the gospel. That is the mercy and grace of God. So if you sense today... That the Lord is dealing with you, talking to your heart, convicting you of your sin, drawing you to himself. 
then don't delay. Come. Come to him. The scripture says, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day. Come to him. If you would like to speak to one of our pastors about your need for salvation, then I would say to you, just please come up and see me. I'll be up here, see me, and I'll ask other elders who are here to come up as well. And if you want to talk to them, I'll direct you to one of them. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you love us, so grateful that you send Christ to die for our sins. So grateful, Lord Jesus, that you are our loving shepherd who lives within us, guides us, puts us upon your shoulders, as it were, and carries us back home, leads us in paths of righteousness through sometimes, Lord, very dark valleys like I'm going through, like my family is going through. We do indeed, Lord, even thank you for that because your word tells us to give thanks in all things. And there are others who are going through dark valleys and if they're not going through a dark valley now, they will at some point. And we pray that this truth, primarily that you're with us and you love us and you'll protect us and you care for us, may you bring that to our minds. May you help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, as I said before, help us as we go through this dark valley to come out the other side. We thank you that you do care for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live within us and you are the comforter, you are the helper. We ask in days to come that you'll bring healing to our church, healing to my family, healing to my own heart. We're very grateful that Lila is with you in glory. And she's with you only because of your mercy and grace. Because over 2,000 years ago, you died for her sins as you were the substitute Lamb of God taking her place on the cross. So Lord, thank you for that. I pray especially for Rachel and Jason and the boys. I pray for extra grace, special mercy. Lovingly wrap your arms around them as they go through this very dark time. But Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for their love and support. And Lord, we pray that as a church body, we will draw even closer to one another. And we also pray for any here without Christ. Draw them to yourself as only you can. Bring them to the Savior. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.